Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Kroc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by Andrew Keith, managing editor at Voice of San Diego. What's up, Andy? What's up, bud? And also fellow managing editor, Andrea Lopez Viafania. What's up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. And special in the studio this week, our Friendsgiving episode has begun. We're sitting at the table with Real food that we are definitely eating, mm-hmm. and joining us to do that is Ryan Bradford, local horror writer, local educator, and author of the always entertaining Awkward SD newsletter. What's up, Ryan? Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm, thanks for having me. I'm very honored and happy to be here. Could you pass the cranberry yeah. sauce? Here you, here you go. Thank you. Yeah. Ooh, thank a little you. running today. It was a real mouth noise there. (laughs) It was so good. I was practicing that. (laughs) So this is our new thing, of course, the second annual Friendsgiving. We're going to talk about one topic each and go through some things we're thankful and not thankful for. Uh, I got to ask you forgiveness because I'm going to jump right to what I'm thankful for because this was such a... A compelling story and it has some San Diego ties. So this is, I am thankful for one uh, Richard Fierro. This is the guy who was at the Colorado Springs uh, nightclub and, and, and drag show. And he's the one that um, took down the shooter. He's got uh, major San Diego ties. He owns a brewery that had a sort of partnership with Border X Brewing. He's a diehard San Diego Chargers fan, I guess, whatever they are now. He's SDSU alum, and he was a badass. This was just an incredible thing that he did, and he he disarmed the 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 gunman and then held beat him, him down, with his own gun. Beat him with his own gun. Controlled the situation. He he tapped into his army training, and uh, this was him with the CNN uh, host the other night, 
explaining it. It was very compelling. And we were, I was, I was guiding people. I was telling people, call 911, call 911. I brought him down. I, I, <laughs> I was in mode. I was, I was doing what I did. I do downrange, you know, I train, I trained for this. I don't want to ever, I, I didn't even retire because I was just, I was done. It was too much. And, uh, I, I'm, you know, it came in handy and, and I got to protect my, my kid. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. There's five people that didn't go home. So he told the New York Times after that, he said, I'm happy about it because it's what I fought for so they can do whatever the hell they want as regards to the, the venue. I think that's like a perfect way to say it. Like, if, if freedom's not letting people do whatever the hell they want, what is it? And I, I just think it was nice to have uh, a, a guy like that out of a tragedy like that, out of a horrible situation like that, um, stand up and, and express that uh, about a, a venue and a place that he was at and stand up and, and tap into some courage to do something. And again, yeah, San Diego State, uh, he's a, a Latino brewer who had that connection to Border X just to... Um, uh, a guy we we all kind of know, like a guy like that around, and uh, that was just cool to see. Yeah, worry I you know worry about the guy go through something like that and then have to do a media tour immediately afterwards. I'm yeah. sure he's uh, not yet, and as you can hear in that clip, not yet grappling with quite the traumatic experience he he lived through. I mean, God bless him, but geez. Well, yeah i I read the kind of profile that was in the. Um, Union Tribune this morning. It might have been a reprint of what was in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I it's been a long time since I've left a story feeling like that um, inspired by like just an everyday act of heroism. And it also seemed like, you know, he's had some difficulties since his military tours. And so this is very like, not complicated, but just closing the cycle of Mm-hmm. trauma I, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know i think that was what was what was powerful about it is that he he encompasses this whole cycle of violence and it, one of the things he said at the end was like i don't i didn't want my daughter and my wife and these people to have to experience combat like that and they're not trained for that and they're and now they have to live with that trauma their their whole lives um and so and yet he was able to use it and he's able to use his experience to protect people who are different, to protect uh, uh, the values he thinks should should thrive, and and so it's like everything that's good and just deeply wrong, <laughs> right there in 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 that experience. Just it was it's just very powerful. But uh, somebody, you know, we have another San Diego tie to that violence, and uh, and that you know the, it seems like it was the grandson of the assemblyman uh, Randy Veppel who was there and and perpetrated this act, but. This is a, a much uh, more powerful tie, and 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 hopefully, uh, he gets sporting needs to to he's gonna his whole life is different, obviously, from this point forward, um, and hopefully that's it's in a good way. Yeah, I think this paragraph in the New York Times got me too, because not just him, but like other people who were there too, who had the bravery to do something. Um, this graph says, as the fight continued, he said he yelled for other club patrons to help him. A man grabbed the rifle and moved it away to safety. A drag dancer stopped on the gunman with her high heels. The whole time, Mr. Ferrero said he kept pummeling the shooter's head while the two men screamed obscenities at each other. But it's like, you can just picture this like moment of chaos and can imagine the trauma that comes after for those individuals who experienced it, but also were you know, actively trying to stop him. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, Richard Fierro, we're thankful for you. Yeah, it makes me mad uh, to think that probably Time Magazine will put. I'm, I'm just guessing they'll yeah. put like Elon Musk on the cover as their person of the year. That's they kind did. of my. Yeah. They, did they? Yeah. Oh. Like the last year, right? Okay. But but it'll, it'll be someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know. Yeah. When it should be Ray Fiera. Richard. Just, Richard. Yeah. I'm sorry. Richard Fiera. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, well, that, then that goes into my topic I was going to bring to <laughs> the Friendsgiving, and that's Twitter. Oh, boy. So, uh, <laughs> w- what? <laughs> go ahead this is like a real thanksgiving dinner yeah you know? yeah like relatives are like oh god all right go, go ahead Tell I, me. I, well that was it i just, just, <laughs> just, just like it. It. Oh, <laughs> oh, don't get me started yeah. uh, <laughs> no so okay so twitter yeah. so i think if i think back to what made twitter special it was that 09 2010 period maybe 08 where like yeah, people started coming on and they realized like, oh my gosh, like other people are here, right? Not only people I know, like Ryan Bradford or, you know, other journalists, but wow, there's the president or there's this this dictator in, in Southeast Asia or, you know, there's just, there was just this moment of like, oh my gosh. And I remember I used to go and demonstrate it for people I would speak to and I'd be like, hey, everybody say hi so that I can like, show them how how instantaneous and powerful this this goes and i you know i'd say and then people would come back there'd be like lobbyists to be like a city council person would reply or an owner of a restaurant and it, and it would be like a vivid demonstration of just something had happened we had created this vein of like conversation that you could tap into and you could you could you could influence yourself and that <clears throat> after a while we created I think kind of a unique San Diego environment. There was a, every journalist was on there. City Beat used to just troll us hard on at Voice San Diego. Um, I don't remember. I this. used to troll the UT hard uh, on there The the and the mayor and the mayor's people would argue. It turned into this, like you had to be on there to see what was, what was next. Right. And I think that was cool and it was awesome in a way but it was also like it also sapped creativity. You had a sign on your on your wall for for many months or years that said like Twitter dulls the mind. And the way I always interpreted that was like you trying to remind yourself like I don't need to put my creative energy into this platform, right? That's right. Yeah. And because it dulls, it it takes that away. It takes away. So all this energy that used to go into like putting up a post on your actual website or uh you know calling somebody or whatever like could be could be vented through this forum. So it was extremely powerful and people would pay attention for hours and hours and hours. And it, it very often felt like work. Yeah. But it was not work or it was not primarily work. Yeah. And, and, and you could very often fool yourself into thinking you were doing journalism. And at least for me, I, I really needed to remind myself that, that it was, that's not the job. Yeah, I remember we had, we had like endless conversations about like should you break news on Twitter? Mm-hmm. Was that and you know, former editor uh, Sarah Libby had, had a notorious like stop breaking news on Twitter because you're you know we have a website, uh, <laughs> but as part of that fooling process, you could also see like 
people people would come up to me and say like i, I follow you on twitter like mm -hmm. i love that that's my only way of like knowing how what's going on in the city or something and so you would again you would delude yourself that like oh i'm this is it but then you would have like a skewed understanding of what the world was right and you would start writing things for that audience you would start to yeah like a prepared response to something you knew would come up on twitter never mind that like there's a vast majority of people who aren't there and that there this little dialogue was was quite limited yeah but you were good and i liked your you you know i knew you from there yeah and i and, I, and then i got to know you from there and i knew you ryan from there yeah, yeah. no that's how i uh, that's how i learned about every like journalist and like even every city policy and all the politics in san diego it was through twitter and to start like you know, following Dave Rollin and Scott Lewis and yeah, I mean, I like I remember, I do remember some like actual interesting journalistic conversations happening. Like I remember one time Dave Rollin when he was at City Beat tweeting, "What's the argument for what what I should list the savings of Prop B for in inflation adjusted or not inflation adjusted?" Oh my god, over that's time, the nerdiest one ever. And there was like like this was the prop. Let me just explain. Yeah, that. sorry, Prop B. That was uh, a froze the employee employees' salaries in the city of San Diego for several years, but then the big one was that it it eliminated pensions, guaranteed retirement funds for city employees, and replaced them with a four hundred one k style fund uh, for new city employees. And that passed in two thousand twelve and was recently thrown out. And now they get pensions again. And so there was an independent budget analyst report that would that that described the effect of this thing, and there was. That it listed the effects both infl with an inflation adjustment and without, and he was he was saying like you know, I'm writing up a story. What which of these numbers do you think I should use? And it was like policy experts jumped in, you know, political hacks that had that you know had their own vested interests jumped in. There was like think tank folks like weighing in. Other journalists were like talking through the, how they had come to that decision. And I was like, I was like a new reporter at the time. I think I'd only been covering City Hall for like a few months, and I was like watching this all. And like, that was the type of decision that I would have previously, at that time as a reporter, made somewhat flippantly. Probably like who I had last talked to, yeah, or what they listed it as on the city council docket. But there was then it was like suddenly you're like witnessing this really high level, very like wonky dis description that even. Regardless of where you end up, you end up like having a better understanding of these sorts of, of of like how people make these sort of fiscal policy decisions in their coverage, and it, it was like really informative to me. And I, I there was probably a bunch like that for some reason that one sticks out in my mind. But it was not all dumb people arguing with each other. No. You know, it, there were smart conversations happening. I, I've had to do maybe five to seven corrections based on what people have brought up. Mm -hmm. In tweets or or arguments they brought up about stories that were off or or wrong, I, it was just this. I it, it really hijacked a big part of our brain mm -hmm. for a long time. But it was funny too. Like you are one of the funniest people on the platform, or were when you were more active. Um, uh, Scott is pointing to Andrea. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, I no, I was pointing to Ryan, but also Thank like. You. There was so there was this like comical, and then there was sports. Mm -hmm. Like I, <laughs> you're, you're, some of your best tweets are when like some big sports thing are happening, and you don't know exactly what it is, but you're just like sports <laughs> because there's everybody's Same. 
<laughs> Sometimes you'll be watching Twitter and you'll just see like, oh my God, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. just like, you don't know what's going on unless you've been watching that game that everybody's watching. But it turned into the place I wanted to go immediately if there was a major event in sports, a live action <clears throat> experience. And it and and then I, I'll you know I'll never forget you 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 uh, Andrea this <laughs> the time. famous tweet that got me hired at Voice of San Diego. <laughs> There's several of these moments with the but yeah you 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 did a little short video about how uh, there was you had parked and then somebody had painted the curb where you parked after you parked there red. Mm-hmm. And I remember the way that you you kind of trolled the city about that was just like. <laughs> Amazing, and it was it was uh, it was a very special. I just think like way to use that content, and they got back to you and said sorry, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> they were like, after investigating or something, we've determined that the curb was painted like while you were parked there, and I was like, yeah, there's literally paint on my tire, <laughs> and half of the well, curb is invest- not painted. Did your investigation tire- <laughs> include looking at the red paint on my tire? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so that's the that's the the Twitter. And now, 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 keep in mind, of course, that like we're talking about like it's such a small number of people who ever used it. Yeah, you know, like that was part of what I always had to remind myself of is like it was easy to convince yourself that that ecosystem you're talking about was way larger than it was and more representative than it was. But it was very it was always very limited at at any point in its history. It was a, a small group. And a self-selecting group, absolutely, and and not entirely representative of mm-hmm. of even the diversity of the community. All kinds of different problems with it, mm-hmm. but it was still very compelling. It was mm-hmm. the first thing I looked at when I opened my phone in the morning, and it was sometimes what kept me up late, 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 arguing or or whatever. So fast forward, now it's been purchased by the Edge Lord. <laughs> and and there's all these people let's just grapple with this for a second like there's all the other night like uh something like 80 percent of the twitter engineers submitted their resignation right everybody's like well this this, this website's over yeah and i just want to address that like no it's not like it's it's going to be fine it's just a website like ultimately these these people that work for elon musk will be able to keep the website going yeah, I, a lot of people seem to think that it's like a nuclear reactor. Yeah, and like suddenly it was going to be like, oh, oh my god, oh my god, like this understaffed group of people running around with like the yellow gloves and the pincher things. Like, does anybody know where that? Like, what's the code to fix the button? It, like, like it might get way worse, and it may no longer be a place you want to go. But like, the servers aren't just going to spontaneously combust, and the website's going to just like be dead, like that. Like they f- fired or lots of engineers left, and like when it would become a problem about whether there's not enough people to fix the code, they could hire more. Yeah, and like, pay them, pay to them do that. to do that. Yeah. yeah, like it's just not gonna die. Now, is I'd, it true? I'd love it if it did, but is it's it true, not Ryan? Gonna... You've been posting less in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I um, yeah, I haven't been posting as much recently. Um, but I find the, I mean, I know Twitter's not going to die, but I find the imminent uh, decentralization of it kind of kind of a uh, thrilling. I feel like it's a new frontier for internet life. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's that's so what we're all kind of grappling with, though. Since it's not going to die, I think everybody should be clear about that. 
is that there's a lot of funny threads by people being like, I work in coding and like, here's why it'll definitely die. Yeah. Shut up, nerd. <laughs> like, it's like, just like, I, I can't like, I'm, I've got like a timer. I'm like, when can I dunk on these threads from last week yeah. that are like obviously wrong and were obviously wrong in the moment. Yeah. And like, I have no subject matter knowledge to know why they're wrong. But like the second I saw them, it was just very clearly a, uh, like a new version of like, I'm a lawyer and here's why Donald Trump will be in jail in six weeks. Right. You know, but, like, but on, <laughs> on Ryan's point, like that's, that's what's really happening yeah, is yeah, it's, yeah. it's losing its centrality. Mm. And, and I think that gets to the heart of what it actually is. It's not a special technology. Yes. There's a lot of things they've introduced that add a lot of complexity and coding challenges, whatever. But in the, at the heart of it, it's just an, it's an editorial product in a way that this that they've been able to build on the backs of people who create content for their jobs and for whatever reason decided like we did to give it all to this company right <laughs> mm-hmm. and yeah. and so they had in essence the greatest newspaper in the world and what's really interesting and funny about what Elon's dealing with is that like he's he's grappling with the implications of that the way that we did in 2010 mm-hmm. where we're like Oh, citizen journalism might be activated, and oh, you know, there's all kinds of fact checking that'll happen. And he's like, he's like saying things that we used to say in conferences in 2011. Like, and it's just, it's just, it's it's comical to watch him like go through that. But I think also though, it reminds you that like this is this is an editorial challenge that he faces because if you think about it, Twitter makes like five billion dollars a year. And that's not enough for a tech company to be successful, but it's really good for a newspaper. It's like it's like orders of magnitude above what any kind of major newspaper can pull in, right? Yeah. And if a, na- a major newspaper had even a half or a fifth of that, they would be like in a great place. And I think that what he's dealing with, though, is like it's a content moderation problem, right? Because if you leave it open, you're going to have all kinds of... Uh, of <clears throat> Edge bad lords. yeah edge lords, edge lords yeah. uh uh racism <laughs> uh uh pornography uh child pornography all kinds of things that you can't have and that he would even say like you can't have so this whole like idea of free speech so the challenge is where do you land with like your moderation policies and what's so funny is that where he's landed is him like he's going to be in the position if he hasn't already been because of the way he's done this of deciding on individual tweets, whether they should be up there or not. That's how badly he has come into this situation. And I think like that's the part that's most hilarious to me, is the most, the richest man in the world has got himself in a position where he has to approve tweets <laughs> up and down. I really like that, that image of him just like hunched over a computer 24 hours a day. He's like, nope, nope. Mm, kind of funny. Uh, okay, I'll let that one go. <laughs> just, and just and and yeah. even the other day, he's like, "I'm going to appoint this advisory council because that's what." Remember again, he's like, "Well, it's just free speech. It shouldn't be that hard." Yeah. And then he's like, "Oh my, I got at least tough decision. I'm going to appoint an advisory council for it." And then the other day, they're like, "Well, what about the advisory council?" He's like, "Well, look, that'll just advise me, and I'll still decide." He's still deferring back to like, "Well, this is my call." Which again is like even as an editor, I can't even I can't edit every single thing that goes into the paper, and that's what he's got himself into. He's just like, oh, uh, these advisors barking at him. He's got people texting him like, "Hey, what about my tweet?" It's like, ah, <laughs> what an idiot. 
when was the last time you you thought about or paid attention to the role that uh, Ticketmaster plays in our lives, Scott? Okay, I actually have a good answer for this. Um, yeah. I bought tickets to Pearl Jam in April 2020. Tw- in 2020, okay. Yeah, and uh, that didn't happen because there was Dude, a- the concert was for April 2020. You bought those probably in late 2019. Yes, and yeah. uh, I don't know that I ever got my money back. I don't know whatever happened with that, and. I don't know why I don't know that. And okay. I, I haven't pushed it because I was just, the word Ticketmaster scares me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so not many I feel like I had to like deal with them and I did it. And then I didn't get anything out of it. And I feel like if I knocked on their door and asked for the money, they'd say, get out of here, nerd. And I was like, okay, sorry. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, of a certain age Spent a lot of time thinking about this question about 25 years ago. Yeah. And then never again. Oh, geez, 30 years ago. And then never again until like maybe two weeks ago. And uh, I welcome them back to the party of caring about Ticketmaster because it's only gotten worse since you checked out of the situation, people of Earth. Um, so Taylor Swift has has done a real service to all to to the world of people who care about buying tickets and wanting to spend less money and have fewer headaches not just them. because of her top quality music well she's obviously uh the world's most famous musician most accomplished and deservedly so she's great no no complaints about taylor swift but what she did was she had a concert or a, a tour and when she put her tickets on sale um her millions and millions of fans who hadn't had a tour of hers to buy tickets to in four years i believe uh, were introduced to the hell that is Ticketmaster in a number of different ways. Um, one is that it is a bad product because they're a all-controlling monopoly. Their product sucks. Their customer service is horrible. The site crashes every time there is any large concert, and it did in this case. And so people spent hours and hours trying to buy tickets. Uh, and then many of them were introduced to uh, a, a, a real innovation in the hellish world of buying tickets which is called dynamic pricing which is essentially you know booking an uber on new year's eve but for concert tickets um and so they after waiting hours and the site crashing many times they were able to get a ticket into their cart and then see that it had because it was in such demand had gone up to two thousand dollars in price um that's a relatively new thing in Ticketmaster, and um basically i just uh I think if there's ever going to come a time that people decide to deal with this company that almost everyone hates, musicians, music fans alike, it was probably going to take Taylor Swift and all of her fans getting in the game. Is the it was concern, probably going to take that. Is the concern the monopoly that they basically run or is the concern like the the user experience or is is the argument that because of monopoly they have a terrible user experience i think that's part of it. i i think because they have a monopoly they do have a terrible because they bought what live nation, live nation several years ago and that just that that means like you you really have to go through ticketmaster and the fees they charge to to get anything done yeah Almost, almost entirely. I mean, there's small clubs and, and venues that are now, not Ticketmaster. Why, why Ticketmaster do they have that power, though? Like, why can't, like, you as, why can't Taylor Swift just sell through taylorswift.com or something? Well, so basically every large, so Live Nation owns venues and operates venues. 
Ticketmaster does all of the ticketing. When they merged and the Department of Justice and uh, granted an antitrust exemption and said that they were not a monopoly, allowed that merger to take part. There are no, there are very few venues that Taylor Swift could play that are not Ticketmaster Live Nation venues. Oh, so if she's playing at a Live Nation venue, she has to sell through Ticketmaster. Correct. Like there's no other option. There's, there's one company. There's no, there's no other option. And now, a small band that I like might play Belly Up, which does uh-huh. not ticket through Ticketmaster and is not owned by Live Nation. But Taylor Swift can't play live. I mean, you know, like that it would only make things worse, right? She needs to play at these a stadium. These sta- at stadiums. And those are all those are almost entirely done through through Live Nation Ticketmaster. And that introduces us to this this world. Can you explain how Taylor Swift and her Swifties fought back? Well, they <laughs> complained a lot. And uh and they were very unhappy, and Taylor Swift eventually had to uh address this situation and realize how unhappy many of her the people who were initially excited to go to her concert uh, were. And so she said, she basically just said, I'm upset about this as well. Um, and all of the attention on it has now resulted in uh, a reported investigation being opened by the Department of Justice mm-hmm. into whether Ticketmaster Live Nation constitute a monopoly. Now, I, if I were to ask... Andy Keats about this. Mm-hmm. I feel like Andy Keats, who's not engaged in music fandom, would say like, obviously, it's not going to change. That's not going to change. I think it's highly unlikely that the antitrust exemption um, m- amounts to anything. Mm-hmm. I-, I don't have incredible amounts of optimism. I think it'll probably end up being like some negotiated settlement that like they have to like lower the price of hot dogs at like venues or something like incredibly stupid. Um, but if there was ever going to be something it, like it would have to be from this, like well, it, you have to, you have to, you have, you have to motivate normal people to care. Like the, the like freaks who go to 15 or 20 concerts a year. And like, there are people who go to hundreds obviously, but like most people go to one or two <laughs> concerts a year or one concert every two years. You need those people to care for to mount any sort of opposition to this situation. And that's who like most of these Taylor Swift fans are. They like they love Taylor Swift. They're mm-hmm. not they're not concert hounds that are like buying concerts regularly. They bought one and were just like this seems abjectly unfair and I hate it. Why is this allowed to be the way? Mm-hmm. And I just welcome them to the fight. I'm very happy about <laughs> My it. My <laughs> friend Taylor, she was pretty fired up cuz she's a Taylor Swift fan yeah. and they had like a whole like command central like thing going on like three laptops like everyone's like monitoring they finally got tickets and then the next day they like bought other tickets and now they're going to sell those tickets but they had like the the whole thing like the whole crew yeah. non-stop watching their laptops until they could buy tickets yeah it's your horrible. friend taylor yeah who's a taylor Swift. shout out to tay tay okay. okay wait is that your friend taylor or tay tay switch yeah i know it is my friend taylor uh, so here's one thing I don't quite get. So the there's very few things that are uh, popular on the left and the right. But mm-hmm. if you had a real populist movement here, which it seems like we're into, like mm-hmm. the Bernies and the Trumps and all that, it seems like antitrust action would be one thing that you could do on some of these tech monopolies mm-hmm. on like Apple or on Facebook or on Ticketmaster. If you started busting up some of these monopolies, seems like 
that would be something that the left and right could kind of get into as far as populism goes. And I'm surprised it hasn't really shown up more. Yeah, uh, and it seems it it just it's maybe that's an invitation to to some of these feds that are listening to the podcast. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, going <laughs> back to Pearl Jam, podcast. that was kind of yeah. like my first um, like image of Eddie Vedder on the on Hit Parader, and it was like Pearl Jam takes on Ticketmaster, and for oh, yeah. like a lot of time in, during the early '90s, they were. Trying to find venues that weren't supported by Ticketmaster, and then they lost, and it destroyed them. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like the history of this is Pearl Jam had an incredibly modest complaint in 1995, I believe, that a, the ticket to their concert was eighteen dollars, and they were willing to charge eighteen dollars, and they wanted Ticketmaster to limit the fees that they charge on the ticket to a dollar and eighty cents, ten percent. So that that's the, and Ticketmaster said no. So if Pearl Jam attempted to hold a concert at non-Ticketmaster ticketing venues. They were the biggest band in the world at the time. And they couldn't do it. The venues were incapable of supporting an act the size of Pearl Jam. And at the height of their fame, they basically lost an entire year of touring. They had to cancel shows routinely. They were out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's like this gap in their career almost that they like go without a, a, a tour at the time that they're the biggest band in the world. And they get they go out to Congress. Congress had had already uh, the federal government had already opened an investigation. They get hauled out into to into a congressional hearing, and they try to make the case that like they just want to have the option of not doing this, and the fact that they don't is evidence that this is a monopoly. Even back then. Even back then. They lose. Everybody, you know, as Neil Young said, Pearl Jam decided to start a war and they they were the biggest band in the world. They thought everyone would get behind them and they did. And then they looked back and no one joined the fight. None. No other bands joined the fight. And all that's changed since then is that Ticketmaster merged with the company that owns all of the venues. <laughs> like they were making a case that this was a monopoly prior to the Live Nation merger. Live Nation merger is approved and the situation is objectively much closer to obviously a monopoly now i mean they they control the entire market and they control all ends of the market it's it is it is by any rational definition it is a monopoly but there is like a new element though now as opposed to pearl jam era of bots right yes. like bots buying up the tickets and then reselling mm -hmm. them for insane amounts of money and yes. i so yeah, the on, reason on exchanges that Ticketmaster controls now. Right? Well, so so the 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 reason your friend had to do what she had to do is mm -hmm. because the moment that the the what Ticketmaster tried to do is they verify fans, and this is their attempt to figure out to say, well, we're only going to sell to verified fans, people we know are actual people who want these tickets, not secondary markets, and so they give you a code. They gave out like three point five million codes. Okay. Um, so everybody goes all at once and then the, these bots scream that there's bot attacks that basically try to bypass the system and buy as many tickets as they can and then immediately list them on secondary mm, markets. Mm -hmm. And there have been technological solutions in the past that end bot attempts to buy all of these tickets that Ticketmaster doesn't use. And then they just buy out the company that creates the 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 bot resistant technology and then just don't use them again. 
Um, so there's been sort of speculation throughout the fan music community for years that like Ticketmaster has a nod wink agreement with these secondary markets and the, these bots and that there's no way that this is happening accidentally. What they do now that what the dynamic pricing is meant to do is essentially bring that secondary market into Ticketmaster. So now they're saying uh, some percentage of these tickets aren't going to go for their face value. They're going to go for a demand responsive price. Um, and that way, instead of those tickets being bought up by a bot, put over on StubHub, StubHub, they're allowed to charge $5,000 for a $100 ticket, and the artist gets none of that money. We're just going to cut that off, and the demand-responsive ticket will be sold right here on Ticketmaster, and then at least Taylor Swift is going to get her cut of that $5,000 ticket, or Bruce Springsteen's going to get his cut of that $5,000 ticket. Um, that's that's what d dynamic pricing is, is is meant to do. One thing I would point out about the dynamic pricing, however, is that it never goes down. Yeah, there's a, a poorly sold event <laughs> never drops in price <laughs> to to clear the market. That it 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 is it is a uh, uh, heads we win, tails we lose, you lose situation entirely uh, with this dynamic pricing. And 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 uh, one thing I'll say about the artists is. They allow it to happen. They, the dynamic pricing, they, they are allowed to say no and they choose to allow it to happen because the hate directed at Ticketmaster gives them a nice veil of, of, of uh, you know, it's a shield and Ticketmaster is happy to be the shield for them because then they, they, you know, they get to, they get to mm. keep using it. So anyway, I don't really expect anything to happen here, but uh, I'm really glad the Swifties are on, uh, on our side now. Because let me tell you, the, the fish army was not going to get it done alone. <laughs> so every so often, I would say, I get a text message from like a four digit number. And I'm always like ignoring it until I finally, you know, pay attention to it. And it's always something from USCIS saying like a ruling has been made on DACA and like click here for more information. And at first I thought like maybe this is a little bit of scam and I'm not going to click on this link. Uh, but eventually I learned that it is USCIS texting me, uh, letting me know that something new has happened with DACA. And every time I see that message, like my stomach feels like it drops and I'm just like, oh, God, like what am I going to read? I haven't been paying attention to Twitter, which is usually where I see conversations about DACA. So DACA, I, I personally am a DACA recipient. So if you don't know what DACA is, um, it's a program created under the Obama administration in 2012 that offered um, children who were brought into the United States by their parents um, some form of protection legally. So you could apply for a work permit. Um, you would basically be deferred from deportation. So if you imagine like a list of people who you know, would be deported from this country, then DACA recipients are simply just put at the bottom of that list. It doesn't mean you can't be deported. Uh, say, for example, if someone commits a crime, then you could be added back to the top of the list. But basically, they'll leave you alone because you came to the United States as a young, ch as, as, a, as a kid. So you didn't make the decision to break any country's laws. Um, so I have that. My parents brought me to the United States when I was a little girl. And um, luckily, through DACA, I was able to get a work permit, which meant that I could work while I was getting my education, and which means I can continue to work. 
um, you have to reapply for this program every so often. Now, for those who have heard about this program, um, this program has like always been, you know, uh, like threatened for its legality. Um, you know, argument whether DACA recipients should be here, arguments for DACA recipients because they contribute to the economy. Um, and it's always felt like we are just like pawns in, in this larger game, right? Like, so people, mostly Democrats saying, we got to protect DACA, we got to um, make it permanent, we got to provide these recipients some sort of like legal avenue for them to become citizens and continue to contribute and not like live on edge. And that hasn't happened and it continues to not happen. And to make things worse, there continues to be legal battles. So um, there's always like a ruling and then another ruling. And so it's just like this back and forth. And so right now we're still at that point. Um, it, nothing has really been decided or anything to like make us feel protected. Um, the only new thing is that their USCIS is not accepting new applications. So anyone... Uh, who wants to be involved in the program can't be. Uh, they are processing renewals. And I just learned that when when the real ID comes into play, where people have to have a real ID to travel and domestic flights, you can't just use like your driver's license. Um, I thought that that meant that I couldn't travel anymore and goodbye Hawaii trips. But I guess I can with my work permit. So I figured that out. But like all of this makes it really complicated and it's just like top of mind every time I get that text message or during the holidays where I'm like celebrating with family, I'm just constantly thinking of like, what if they just decide to get rid of DACA or like Congress can't pull it together to, you know, give us some sort of protection and then like I can't work. And when did so, you actually get what do you it? Do? Um, I was in high school, like 2013. Okay, so but it was before Trump took office. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would imagine when Trump Trump took office, the the anxiety went up a little. Mm -hmm. bit. Oh yeah, I remember when we were. Uh, I was at San Diego State University, and we were in the Daily Aztec newsroom, like in the basement, when the results came in, and everybody like looked at me because they all, you know, I've been very open about my uh, immigration status, so all of my friends were just like, "Oh my God, are you okay?" And I was like. I don't know what this means. Like, I'm just like going through school right now. <laughs> what does that mean for my future? Uh, luckily, I, you know, continue to work and continue to have my protection. But yeah, that's so terrifying. Even he at times expressed support for they're often called dreamers, mm -hmm. right? Because that's the ultimate solution that there actually be a legal solution to that status as opposed to a directive from mm -hmm. the president. And this is just an enforcement directive. He never actually got rid of it, right? He just, he, there was just attorneys across the country, some states and stuff that challenged mm -hmm. the legality of what Obama did. Yeah. But, but did Trump ever turn off the, the program or anything? Or do you remember any moments during that period? I don't remember. I just think it was more of the rhetoric and then those legal cases that yeah. were actually like the legal cases were the ones that were more threatening than anything he was like saying on TV. Because it actually meant for some people who already had the program, the concern was like, well, does this, you know, does this mean my work permit is not valid anymore? Or if you were like on the verge of when you need to reapply, does that mean they're not going to accept your application? Um, a couple months ago, I met this young girl who had just won a scholarship and I was talking with her and she's like, yeah, um, I got accepted to USC. She's very young. 
And she's like, but I just got approved from my DACA and I had an appointment to get my biometrics done, which every time you get approved, you have to go get your fingerprints done and you have to go to the USCIS office. And then she said she got a text message from that same number that said, uh, there's been a court decision and we're no longer doing any biometric appointments. And so like this girl got accepted to USC, got a scholarship to go to school. And now she, you know, I mean, she's she needs to work so she can help her parents pay for part of the schooling. But like now she can't work because she doesn't have a work permit. I mean, it seems like the politically it's worked. The situation has settled into a stasis that's not going to be disrupted anytime soon because Mm -hmm. there's not enough votes to pass the Dream Act. Mm-mm. But even those who oppose, who won't vote for the Dream Act, do not actually are not actually eager to deal with the political consequences of deporting mm-hmm. millions of people mm-hmm. who have a very uh, sympathetic story mm-hmm. about how they've ended up here. And so, the like handshake agreement between them that doesn't what doesn't actually include a handshake is this legal or this, you know, executive decision that they'll rhetorically oppose mm-hmm. but not pursue in in opposition in in large numbers and everyone can kind of go okay, well I, I guess I guess this is okay for the for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. But obviously in the meantime there's like actual humans who are left yeah. dealing with the consequences <laughs> of that limbo state. Yeah. That's exactly how everybody describes it, like yeah. legal limbo, like dreamers are always in this limbo. And mm. it's like you you hear it, but like it's true, you know, like when you think about the job or the work that you do or, you know, whether you're going to buy a home, it's like, well, do I, do I not? Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes mortgage like, is a 30 year product. For me, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to do and somebody mm-hmm. stops me. OK, but <laughs> what do you what do you think the um the purpose of these text messages are? Are they too? motivate you or just scare you are they i mean i don't know they're they're very like strangely laid out like it almost doesn't seem like it comes from uscis the only reason it makes me think it comes from them is that the link takes you to their website but um i think they just like have you on a list and they just let you know if there's a new update but um this text got to me a couple weeks ago and it was for a decision that happened in october so it was just kind of weird that it was so old but Hmm. um yeah, they always just text you random stuff. It also must be a little bit of an anxious feeling to know that you are like everything about you is listed somewhere, right? Like mm-hmm. you're you are you and several hundred thousand others have everything about what you do, mm-hmm. probably where you've gone, who you are, where you work, mm-hmm. uh, listed on this. And so, if there was ever a bad actor that took over the government that wanted a nice list of people who technically weren't of. here, yeah. <clears throat> or didn't arrive here in through the legal channels, then th- that would be an easy place to start mm-hmm. to 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 sort of show how tough you are. Yeah. Because um, you have to keep all your information updated, like any any sort of move or anything. Like they have to have your work information and everything. They know everything about you. Can you leave the country? No. They're, well, it changes with the different court decisions, and I don't know where it's at right now. But they used to give this thing where if you had to travel for, say, a family member died and, um, you know, you had to go travel to their funeral, you could get like a permit to go travel, but you had to come back. Um, 
or if it was work-related, you could go. I think there's another one for uh, students abroad. I remember that was an issue when Donald Trump was president, that a lot of people who were DACA recipients who had gotten these permissions and they were studying abroad were worried whether they were going to be able to come back. Um, I've never applied for any of those three, but yeah, technically, like, I mean, like we live in San Diego, but I couldn't go to TJ. I mean, I could go, but then I couldn't come back. And just the worry about what might happen at that border would, mm-hmm. would be a... Yeah, like going, like I love Plaza de las Americas and I love shopping there. <laughs> but like going there is like my my hands are always like clammy because I'm like, what if I miss this exit? What if like I take a wrong turn or something and somehow I end up like, it's just like you just build it up in your mind, which is probably, yeah, it's, sure it's there's, like, there's a, like an extra exit. But. It's like a soft trauma <laughs> over your head. I'm all like, the, do yeah. I really need to go to the outlets? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean that's crazy. Like it, that's a, that's a mall, like yeah. six miles from your house. Yeah. To like think of like <laughs> should I go to that mall six miles away being like a a trauma that you have to think about. Yeah. It's, mm. it's traumatic. Yeah. Uh, so what what's next? We're we're just waiting for the court cases to play out and yeah. and whether any of these yeah legislative or 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 presidents well, want to take I on read, this challenge. I read in uh, CNN posted a story. Um, yesterday that said that like democrats are hoping that during the lame duck session they'll be able to do something but like this is always the same story that happens all the time so i don't think they will um as long as these court cases don't totally get rid of the program um i think would be fine you would just have to you know renew your permit renew your um your application every so often um, but I do feel bad for like the younger people. You know, I think back to that young student who just like has a fantastic future ahead of her, but she's not able to get her work permit just now. So hopefully it, whatever happens with the court decisions, hopefully they allow new recipients to also apply. What is the, is there any last thing you'd want people to understand about the situation or about what you and your yeah. others go through? I think it's... Um, do you know, I mean, there's so many news stories about like the contributions that DACA recipients um, have done both in our country and just like our local communities. But it's always surprising to me. Like I've normalized it so much because I talk about it so much. But uh, the other day I was getting my hair done and I was t- my hairdresser was like, oh, do you go to TJ often? And I had to explain the whole thing to her. And she was just so surprised. Like she had heard of the program, but she didn't know like for her to know that she knew somebody who was a DACA recipient was like pretty significant. So I think that you likely know somebody who's a DACA recipient. And so just uh, be as supportive as you can. All right. All right. Um, I'm supposed to bring something to Friendsgiving table. Yeah, I brought a plate full of Kit Kat bars. I hope you know. <laughs> um, no, it, any of you guys uh, bike riders? Yeah, mm-hmm. no. yeah. Bike commuter to, to oh. this to this very office. What do you think of the coverage of biking in San Diego? <laughs> Ooh, oh boy, it's gonna get hot in here. <laughs> Chose violence today. Uh, <laughs> um, oh boy, uh, <laughs> I think it is comically overheated. Comically overheated. Yes, yeah. I, I think so too. I mean, I don't have. I, um, I think it's very rare that you would get the impression that people are talking about like plastic posts being being nailed to a piece of concrete in the way that people describe it. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And I think this is probably going to like barrel into my thankfulness. Yeah. Um, but I'm just really thankful. 
I'm happy about the city, how the city of San Diego has kind of boosted their uh, biking infrastructure in the last few years. And, um, you know, regardless of how it's been covered by certain media, um, <laughs> and they just like, they go full steam ahead, I feel like, without, um, you know, taking in consideration the, the business owners or the uh, wh- whoever else is having trouble with the bike lanes. But, but like, in my experience, so like the, there are some downtown bike lanes and mm-hmm. uh, they were built in like 2016, 2017. And there was a lot of consternation about the lost parking and the uh, reduced travel lanes. And then, oh, yeah. and then like they, the floating lanes. Yes. Yeah. And then they were opened. And then like a couple years went by and like, I'm here all the time. I go to those businesses. I sometimes bike in those bike lanes. Not that often. It's a little bit out of my way for where my route is. Mm-hmm. But one thing that no one even bothers to talk about anymore is whether those are a problem. Like they're so they're just like in like it's a it's a controversy until they're there and then a couple months go by and the fact that the lost parking is a rounding error is immediately acknowledged to be reality mm-hmm. and people sort of just uh, flee from the trumped up controversy of them. Um, now the 30th Street bike lane I'll concede has been more of a lasting concern. Mm-hmm. than any of the ones downtown were. People continue to like be upset about that. There's still like anti-bike lane signs on the businesses on 30th Street. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in general, for the most part, once these things go in, it's like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, just for fun, I I Googled uh, bike lanes and just typed in the, the news. And yeah. even two days ago, I can't remember what yeah. site it was, but they were um, posting about the declining number of bikers who are using these um these lines or i don't know how yeah is there like a little wire that they write over yeah there yes exactly um, i have some i have some issues with that as far as as far as data but, goes but i'm but just yes. like why is this still a story i mean people yeah. aren't at playgrounds like tallying the number of children like playing <laughs> on the slides or the swings i mean it's yeah to me in my mind like a bike lane and safe bike infrastructure is as good of a community service as like a a neighborhood park yeah it's a, um, i mean it's a, it, like <laughs> children use them <laughs> it, you know like I, I don't i feel like people really lose sight of the fact that like the only person who could ever use a bike lane is like a an annoying hipster going to like drink craft beer and like never entertain the idea that like maybe a six year old kid would be more likely to bike in there than on a busy street. Like a six year old kid going to a craft beer bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. They need that safety too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just so weird how, and it's weird that you brought up, you said the word Trump and how it, yeah. how this is like just another stupid like topic that has been politicized. And I feel like, um, a lot of the animosity toward bikers comes from this, like us against them. Um, I think bikers have been lumped into like near like Antifa, Antifa status yeah. to people that have not been bikers. And I think it's because uh, they get yelled at by <laughs> mean bikers after almost killing them. The, um, yeah. Yeah. There's that. I mean, I do think that there's like part of the bike lane discourse suffers from, there, I think there's like a, a 
leftist impulse too to side with these small business owners even mm-hmm. as like suddenly they're the David and the city is the mm-hmm. Goliath. And you mm-hmm. see this framing is, is taken on a lot. And so I think it, it gets like kindling in the fact that it has uh, both like a plausible liberal theory of 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 somebody being put upon that it's the city is doing this for thoughtless reasons and and then a conservative one that's like this is bad for business this is in pursuit of some like far-fetched climate focused policy um this is uh, uh an assault on the like the way we live people are trying to tell us that we need to be different and it's like the fact that you can you can get a little bit of anger from from people who might other not otherwise agree i think is sort of uh part of how this how it becomes such a like a loud controversy mm-hmm. i covered the bike lanes when i was at the ut it was the 30th street um bike lanes and didn't want to, but I was assigned the story. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like one of the first stories I wrote. Um, I mean, it was interesting. I think like it it was so the idea of like, what the heck is the city doing? Like they're getting rid of all this parking, which we need for people to come to our businesses. And if their idea is to like increase ridership, like show us the numbers of people who are actually biking through this community and then like you don't actually have good bike infrastructure elsewhere. So like people would be bi- biking in parts where they're not protected and then areas that they are protected. Um, and then I remember I did a story on like disability advocates who are very concerned with not being able to, you know, park right in front of mm-hmm. a business, uh, getting rid of the handicap parking um, or excuse me, the accessibility parking spaces and um, the city like basically just added more parking spots, but on inside streets and made like diagonal parking. And um, it was just interesting to cover because I covered so many of the protests and so many people just really, really fired up about the bike lanes. And like every time I would go out there, you know, some older person would be like, look, and this whole time we've been out here, like one person has biked by like, but you see all these cars, like all these people like trying to find parking and yeah. It was just the 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 best thing about covering the bike lane discussion for me was watching Dan when he'd show up with his KUSI Dan Plant. Yeah. Van and his <laughs> jeans and his flip flops and like he was like best friends with these people and Oh yeah. It was just the funniest thing to observe or just stand there and watch him do his skit. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I I definitely think there are valid concerns, like as you said, accessibility. Mm-hmm. I don't think everybody you know, especially like families um, who rely on cars and, you know, mm-hmm. transportation, especially like bringing around like in children around. Obviously, they need like cars to do that. Um, no an entire family can't sit on an electric bike. But um, I think every city that has built up a robust bike infrastructure has been better for it. I think what we're seeing is like this historic sort of clash, right? Because San Diego was built as a Western car-centric city, right? And the idea was, if you're ever driving a car, and I still feel it sometimes, if anything gets in your way, if anything slows you down, you're like angry about it, like instinct, instinctively just angry 
that something's stopping you, right? And and I think um, it's really hard because that's where some of the worst accidents happen, right? If, you, if you're stuck behind somebody and you don't know why they've stopped, there's like a fury that develops and people wheel around and then they don't realize that there's like some old lady crossing and they crush, you know, it's an awful mm-hmm. circumstance. And I think, but I think writ large, like that's what's happening is there's this, there's this entitlement that goes with, I should be able to drive into my house, park, when I need to go somewhere, drive there, drive right to where I need to go, park close to where I need to go, go take care of my business and then, and then leave. And that that's works in very suburban environments. But when you're in an environment like this, that's being retrofit for more population, it has to, it has to change. And, and, and that change is going to create this backlash of people who are like, no, you are trying to take that away from me. You're trying to, it's not the community taking away. It's not the more people here. It's not the environment. It's you are trying to take it away from me. And if you just left us alone, we'd be able to go uh, and and not an acknowledgement that there's like more people who need to get to more places. And and that's what they also, they want to keep those more people out. And so it all, it lumps in together with the anti-development and all of that. They don't want to see the city retrofit. They want to stop that. And and then there's people who went to Europe and have seen functional cities that do have more walkable and bikeable environments. And they want to see that. And that clash, I don't know how that clash ever gets resolved because that frustration, that fury about not being able to go and, and stop and park where you want to go is is going to be like all consuming, just like any road rage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the the, the like <clears throat> sense of some of personal affront that the most most uh outspoken bike lane opponents have it 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 is so irrational in 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 excess of what is actually being done about about the actual policy dispute like the the relatively small loss of parking spaces and the relatively small amount of road space that's being rededicated to a different mode of travel can't explain the level of animosity that people have it's not yeah it's not commensurate there 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 are groups of people who are who are uh who are handicapped in a way that they they do need parking out front and they represent a very small percentage of the people who are most angry mostly you have people who are perfectly able-bodied who can walk um two blocks if they needed to and don't often go to that part of town anyway and when they did go to that part of town, didn't actually have much of an expectation of getting a parking space exactly in front of the coffee shop they were going to go to at all. And so like objectively the, the like thing that is being lost from them, the like level of convenience that, that is being taken from them can't explain the level of anger. You have to like, you know, to, to explain the mindset of those people, you have to start looking for some sort of bigger picture, uh, fight that they're actually having and bike lanes are just a proxy for that because it just otherwise it just doesn't make any sense i mean no one could reasonably claim that like their lost parking in front of that jewelry store on 30th street was worth <laughs> so much to them right. that to have it taken from them is like it, it, it is it, yeah. it like it motivated them into the streets and that's why protest. it lumps together with the things like the height limit discussion yeah. is because it isn't about that specific discussion. They fully admitted no. it wasn't about Midway with that. Yeah. It is about the way of life yes. that they picture for San Diego being attacked yeah. and, and, and needing a response. Thanks for listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs 
podcast recorded in San Diego that does a Friendsgiving episode now every year. Keep up with all of our stories and takes on the news with The Morning Report, our most popular newsletter. Get it at VOSD.org slash newsletters. That's VOSD.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrew Keats is Managing Editor. Andrea Lopez Villafaña is also Managing Editor. And Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>